Snapshot of a year gone by in Ireland. Most public transport comes under the control of Corus Umpereran. The people of Ireland donate one million pounds to the starving people of Italy. John F. Kennedy visits Dublin as a journalist, and Count John McCormack dies in Dublin at the age of 61. These headlines suggest a country going about its everyday life. But the world was at war, albeit the closing stages of the second one. This was 1945, and on May 7th, reports of a German surrender brought students of Trinity College Dublin onto the roof of the university singing the English and French national anthems. A riot ensued following the burning of the Irish tricolour. Irish neutrality was a thorny issue that year and would remain so for some time to come. On the 18th of February 1945, German submarine U-260, under the command of Klaus Becker, leaves Christiansand in Norway. This would be the submarine's ninth patrol, but also its final one. A few weeks later, U-260 would be scuttled by its crew, three nautical miles south of Glandor Harbour in West Cork. Again, just like seven of its previous patrols, there would be no records of engaging the enemy or sinking their ships. Compare Becker's record with that of Otto Kretzner, who between September of 1939 and March of 1941 had sank 47 ships. So, what was their real assignment, as sinking ships doesn't seem to be one of them? This evening on Where the Road Takes Me, we continue the story of U-260, some of it seen through the eyes of 12-year-old Mary Glanville, a lightkeeper's daughter stationed at the Galleyhead Lighthouse when some of U-260's crew came ashore. Good evening and welcome to Where the Road Takes Me. On the 18th of February 1945, German U-boat U-260 departs Christiansand in Norway. This would be its ninth patrol and also its last. Surprisingly, in its 424 days at sea, it had sank only one merchant ship. On the 28th of December 1942, U-260 attacked and sank the British merchant steamship, the Empire Wagtail, 900 miles west of Cape Finisterre. The master, 35 crew members and 8 gunners were lost. The U-boat was commanded on this occasion by Hubertus Perkold. After departing Christiansand on February 18, 1945, U-260 now heads for the open sea. Now under the command of Oberlieutenant Klaus Becker, the submarine will be scuttled 23 days later, three nautical miles south of Glandor, off the West Cork coast. This is Becker's seventh patrol as commander of U-260. He has four decorations, the wound badge in black, the Iron Cross second class, the Iron Cross First Class and the U-Boat Front Clasp. Becker is only 25 years of age, yet he is known for being well-versed in covert operations, like dropping and collecting spies in areas difficult to gain access to with a submarine of this size. Interestingly, before Becker departs Christiansand, he meets with Grand Admiral Karl Donitz, the Commander-in-Chief of the German Navy, the man who took the place of Hitler. Are we reading too much into this meeting, or would it be true to say that Donuts didn't make a habit of meeting with all submarine commanders before they left on patrol? 
As the U-260 approaches the West Cork coast on March 12th, 1945, a new Coast Watch crew has been in place on the galley head since 8pm. On the night of Monday, March 12th, 1945, and just like any other night, Mary Glanville, her brother and her sister had gone to bed in the lightkeeper's house on the galley head. Mary was 13 years old at the time, young certainly, but still old enough to sense that there was something unusual about this particular night. I don't know how we managed it about time because we never had watches and things. There was a clock in the house, but there was a certain time we went to bed and that was it, you went to bed and you got up the next day and so on. And he, he was not on duty, but he was down in the kitchen where there was a, a range, as they called it, and it, was, it burned coal at first, then coal got scarce, of course, and it burned off. And he said he'd stay up a while, and we didn't quite know. I just thought it was strange, but then people do things you would take no notice. And I don't know how long we were in bed, and there was suddenly this really loud bang, and a big pink light, there was, a, I think it was one window, if not two, or just the one in the bedroom at the front of the house. This pink light kind of filled it, the the window and filled the room and Martha and I were in bed we didn't know what it was and then I don't know was it that time or the second time because there was a second explosion if you want to call it an explosion mm-hmm. my mother came in from somewhere and I thought she kind of more or less implied there was hardy boys as we'd call them somewhere which would be utter nonsense of course because nobody would hang around the lighthouse and anyhow then all was calm and she came in and she reassured us I'm not sure did she stay or what did she do. And you see, time-wise, I don't know what the time was. But at some stage, we settled down and my father opened the bedroom door and he said, there are German soldiers in Joe's house. Do you want to see them? And I remember that phrase. Now, Joe was the keeper next door to us. The two houses are together out at the galley. Good, substantial houses as well. And the first thing I thought of Germans, soldiers, guns, because soldiers have guns. And then I thought, what would Germans be doing in Ireland anyway? And, you know, this was my own thought now I was about what age 13 or 14 and then uh, whatever Martha and I we said we'd get up I thought well our father and our mother will look after these things because that's what they do so we got up anyhow and came downstairs The lookout post on the galley head which was manned by the Coast Watch was just a stone's throw from the galley head lighthouse thanks to military archives at Cahal Brewer Barracks in Dublin who have supplied us with the Coast Watch logbook for that night and the early hours of the following morning we can now piece together the sequence of events. The logbook states that at 23.59 the watch was changed. At 0300 and the early hours of Tuesday the 13th carried out telephone test. At 0315 sighted flares nine miles southwest of port. 0450 sighted shipwrecked crew half a mile east of port on raft. At 0540 informed the message centre of the landing and informed Roscarbury Gardee of 11 members of a German submarine and from information received from them that two other rafts were adrift. At 0736, sighted Court McSherry lifeboat one mile south of port and directed the lifeboat to proceed in the direction of Dandor where the flares had been observed. 0645, a Gorda and a superintendent arrived at port and took over charge of the crew. At 0800, handed over the watch. Court McSherry is my next stop, and there I meet Jim Crowley. He's a former crew member and Hansek of Court McSherry Lifeboat, and he has a copy of the Lifeboat Coxswain's report for that night.
says here that the coxswain was laid, the coxswain was laid up till the second coxswain took out the lifeboat. And uh, I'll give you their names there now soon, John. And um, that the handsack at the time was laid up as well. And that was his brother, Robert Ruddock, that did the report. And it was down that distress signals had been seen off the galley head. The night was fine and a little hazy, he said. And the, the, the boat reached the area in fair time, finding the dinghies with the shipwrecked crew on board. So, and that's where they got the, the 16 dinghies. Uh, I think it was about five miles, it said, uh, west of the galley head or southwest of the galley head. They had been about eight hours, it said, in, in I think eight hours in the water. Eight hours after abandoning ship, they were picked up. Which would so, have been the previous which, night. Which would have meant that they, that, that was the previous night in the Yeah. And I think that, t- that goes in with the time that the lifeboat picked them up and the time that you had already, um, when she was scuttled. Or, yeah. you know, so, um, the, the names the of the crew of the lifeboat and, uh, and that night was Dennis Welton, Dennis Driscoll. Dennis Welton was the coxswain, Dennis Driscoll was the bowman, and Herbert Jeffers, James Welton, Walter Bolton, John Welton. Patrick Neal and Percy Egan. And when I joined the lifeboat myself in 1961, Dennis Welton and James Welton were still in the crew, on the crew that time. Dennis was always known to us as Dinnishine. And um, James, or Jim Welton, was always known as 90. Also, the other one that I can remember, of course, is um, Patrick Neal, Patsy Neal. Patsy was the mechanic in the lifeboat when I was in my early days. And a very good mechanic he was and a great seaman. After German U-boat U-260 had been scuttled by the crew three miles south of Glandor Harbour, all 48 on board got into a number of small rubber dinghies. It is said that the second-in-command had wished to go aft and open extra valves so that the submarine would sink faster, but Captain Klaus Becker would not allow it. 37 of the crew eventually were picked up by Court McSherry lifeboat, and 11 made their way towards the Galleyhead lighthouse. For such a young crew, it certainly was a feat of seamanship to find their way safely into the dangerous inlet below the lighthouse, and then climb up a very steep precipice and present themselves at the lighthouse. To get a bird's-eye view of exactly what they encountered, I am joined at the cliff edge by Pat Harrington and Gerald Butler, who lived in the lighthouse and was also stationed here as a lightkeeper. He is currently the attended lightkeeper. Patch on myself often talked about that. Um, when that uh, submarine, even to get in here now under the cliff, it had to go around the, the rocks to get into that little place to climb up. And you can see uh, how sheer the cliff. It's 133 feet to the top of that cliff. And um, to climb up that, you really would want to know what you're doing. Now, I know Patch on myself and us when we were living here we used to be up and down that quite a bit but we knew it but these lads and it was also in the middle of the night they didn't know it I suppose to their advantage they were young I mean they were about 19, 20, 21 yeah yeah, yeah, and when you're you're in that age you're as fit as a fiddle and they must have been to climb that so they did that was where they came in and yeah climbed up that cliff it was of course and it still is Petro fairly steep it is yet but the well, the path that time, there's a lot of driftwood coming that time, so that we used to be up and down there fairly often. The yeah. path was fairly visible, like, but nowadays it is completely overgrown. I don't know, could you go down there or not now? I know that Gerald was the last one went down there, I'd say, and he said that the bottom of the path, there was when the storms came there, that it took all the bottom of the path, so I'd say at the present time, you could hardly go down there. Is that the, the stags that we that I see over there? That's the stag, yeah. yeah. And the submarine, I saw you pointing where to go, Pacho. Where so exactly? We out from that somewhere, about, about three miles out, I think. Three miles out from that, yeah. From Glendore, so yeah. I thought that we both that direction. Somewhere out there, yeah. yeah. 
So it was no joke when they got off the submarine, scuttled the submarine, got into these little dinghies to paddle all the ways in darkness, unknown territory, and make their way here. To get in there was a yeah. mystery in itself. As Gerald said there a while ago, to go around the rocks and to come in. And to, I, think, I, I can't remember right, but I think to the blustery light enough, there was a lot of white water around. So they still got in there and yeah. And there's rocks over there that we can see just submerged a little bit, Gerald. There is. And then I suppose another thing is, and you'd remember that, Pacho, back in the days, the light that was working here at that time, some of the light used to shine down in, in, the, in the dark period. Some of the light used to shine down and light up all the, um, the shoreline because you did work on your boat there when, when the, something went wrong with your engine and you just came in under the head here, dropped anchor and carried out repairs. You know the two, you know the two lights that time. Two lind are the two burners were going that time, and the light was actually shining down as well as out. But the bottom light is gone now, so that it doesn't hardly shine down there at all now. There's only the one light on top now. Yeah, and of course we—I I forgot that it was a lighthouse, so they were—they had some light anyway to guide them by. Oh, they had. They knew where they were, all right. There's no yeah. doubt about that. They knew where they were, and um, when they came in. Um, I suppose even when you think about it, the fact that there was white water, that the sea was a little bit rough, um, it might have even been uh, helping that it was able, they were able to identify the, you'd see the white off the rocks and just keep off it. The dinghy would be up on top of the water anyway, it wouldn't be drawing anything, so it was, um, but still it was quite very, a very tricky place to come into. You know, we've often we've often looked at that and said, Oh, in the name of the great goodness did they get in there. Yeah. But in they came. The scuttling of German U boat U two sixty off Glandor Harbour on Monday night, March twelfth, nineteen forty five. It's a two part programme and the story is seen mainly through the eyes of Mary McCarthy. Back then she was thirteen year old Mary Glanville, and her father Sam Glanville was principal keeper at the Galleyhead Lighthouse. Part two in programme two is on the way shortly. Mm-hmm.